Danamora, two escaped killers, three weeks of terror, and the largest manhunt ever in New York State. Before we talk to Charles Gardner, who's not only the author of this tremendous book, he's also a retired lieutenant with the New York State Department of Corrections and worked inside the walls of Clinton Correctional Facility. But Charles, before we chat, let me ask you. Are you tired of your feet hurting and your dress shoes? Most people think it's their shoes, but it's not. It's the socks. HeshySocks.com solved this problem by creating the most comfortable socks to keep your feet fresh and feeling great. So here's the deal. Most fashion and dress socks, they're expensive, poorly constructed, and provide zero protection. Not Heshi Socks. Heshi Socks are cushioned in the heel, foot, and toe. They have this arch support in the center so your feet don't slosh around in your shoes. You can work out, play ball, run in them, do whatever. They're made with breathable Pima cotton and are antimicrobial to kill the stink. But best of all, they're designed to stay up. For me, that's the most important thing. No more pulling your socks up all day long. Go to HeshiSocks.com. H-E-S-H-I Socks.com. HeshiSocks.com. But here's where it gets fun. Enter the promo code SAFO30. That's S-A-F-O, the number three, the number zero, SAFO30 at the checkout for 30% off your entire order. You'll never find such high quality footwear at this price. I promise you. Heshi Socks offers an array of colors and styles from the basics to the fashion, even ankle socks. I spoke last week how much I love these socks. Not just because of the style or the variety, and the variety is killer. Ankle socks, plain black work socks. They have the thin striped, and my favorite, the rugby ones, the thick striped, I think those look the sickest. But I love them the most because of the comfort, and it's ironic because when you listen to today's podcast, you'll hear about two escaped prisoners, three weeks on the run, the largest manhunt ever in New York, and the one thing they needed, and this is the truth, was comfortable socks. They were at the foothills of Canada, in the mountains. They were hiking. It was cold. It was rainy. And all they yearned for was comfortable socks. Now, Heshi Socks is a good brand. I guarantee these convicted killers prayed they had some Heshi Socks. So Heshi Socks is not just for escape prisoners. They're for everybody. I'm telling you that my favorite socks out there right now, I reached out to the company, told them how much I love them. And you've listened to my podcast for a while, everybody. I don't do advertising. I've been offered like a few things here and there. Nothing I even really enjoyed. These socks came, I'm like, unbelievable. And I spoke last week about loving the Heshi socks when I fly. I got a trip coming up in 12 days. I'm telling you, my whole suitcase will be packed. The only socks I'll be bringing with me are Heshi socks. Go to HeshiSocks.com, H-E-S-H-I socks.com promo code sappho 30 and now finally welcome to the podcast your honor thank you thank you for uh, the call this evening i'm excited we spoke a few days ago for the first time and you didn't have skype you barely had the internet i feel like i'm talking to some famous amish guy right now <laughs> these these uh this chunk of string and the two tin cans are working out pretty good so far <laughs> <laughs> a, a judge, a retired lieutenant with the New York State Department of Corrections, and now an author of an awesome book, which I just finished, Danamora, Two Escaped Killers, Three Weeks of Terror, and The Largest Manhunt Ever in New York State. Your Honor, was this your first book that you ever wrote? It, it was. And just for clarification, my term is done, so I'm, I'm just a good old civilian like the rest of the world. But you had a nice past life, a judge, a correctional oh officer, police officer, now author. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's been quite a run. That's for sure. I've been very, very blessed. That's for darn sure. 
What made you want to write this book? Mike, um, being a local at the time of the uh, the escape out of Denimora, uh, I was watching the national media. I was watching the coverage of the uh, the story as it unfolded. And I was just completely amazed on, on how inaccurate the reporting was. And it got to the point where I got kind of got my dander up. And I was like, somebody has got to tell this story and just simply tell the truth. Stop the spin. Stop the agenda. And just, and just tell the truth what's happened. And I'm glad you mentioned that because we're going to get into the criminals, the murderers that they were. <clears throat> Some of the news was kind of romanticizing that guys escaped from prison. And they were like, oh, it's like Shawshank. And he was wrongfully convicted. These were two bad dudes, and in your book, you actually described perfectly the kind of people they were. Doing all that research and going back, was it difficult to get all that information that you needed? No, the research was there. All you had to do was just simply foil the uh, the information. The information was out there, and they had a, a horrifying um, criminal history, these two individuals. So without a doubt, these were um, these were not of Shawshank uh, caliber. These guys were the real deal. What surprised you the most about writing this book? You sit down, you're like, I'm going to write this book that needs to be told. You're a few days into it. What are you thinking to yourself? Well, I, I never figured that it was going to go anywhere. Matter of fact, it was kind of the, the, the chuckle in the house. Uh, <laughs> my, my lovely wife came home from work one day and I said, you know what? I said, I'm going to write a book about this escape. And she was uh, almost to the point where she was almost patting me on the head going, that's good, dear. You write a book about the escape. <laughs> <laughs> like a retirement hobby, right, Charles? Exactly. Oh, yeah. If that's what it's going to take to keep you happy, yes. You have at it, dear. Yes. Now, you stood inside the prison. You worked inside cells. You had a different perspective than mostly anyone in the in the country. Were you nervous that someone else was going to try to write this book quicker than you and try to get out a quicker book than you on a hot so like a hot topic? Oh, there was a number of them that came out, uh, without a doubt, ahead of me. There was a lot of them that were uh, quick to uh, get a book out there. The problem with that is the inaccuracies that were out there. Mm -hmm. um, they were going by a lot of misinformation. And, uh, yeah, there was a big rush. I, I was in no rush. I wanted the book to be factual. I wanted it to be right on the money. And when it got done, it got done. It was as easy as that. I started the book, and I was shocked living in New York City – how many? I knew there's a lot of prisons and jails here. I was shocked with how many are, are up there in uh, upstate New York. Oh, a number of them. Um, at the end of my career, I was what was known as a regional training lieutenant, and I oversaw the training out of uh, the 13 facilities in the northern New York region. So that was just basically um, Jefferson County, St. Lawrence County, Franklin County, and Clinton County. So just those four counties. I was overseeing uh, 13 correction facilities, approximately 6,000 staff members oh and their God. training. How long did you do? How long did you do on the job? I was 25 years. I spent 25 years in prison. Did you love it? Um, it was different. Boy, <laughs> just when you thought you'd seen it all, you'd go to work the next day and you'd see something else. It was just every day was just something different. Your book and the story itself is focused around four main people. The two people I want to talk about are the two murderers inside the jail, David Sweat and uh, Richard Matt. They're bad, bad, bad dudes. It wasn't this all oh, this 13 seconds of um, bad decisions cost a life. These were hardened bad criminals, right? That is correct. Um, if you look at individually, um, Sweat was the first one to end up at Clinton Correctional. Um, again, his whole life, this, this guy has been in and out of the system. Uh, he, he, this was his, uh, when he got to Clinton Correctional, this was his second state bid. 
Um, you know, he'd been given ample opportunities and he just, he blew them all. And uh, he was, he was one of those guys. He was going to be a career criminal. And, and Matt was the same thing. Sweat was like a, a bad human being. Like he was burglarizing homes, stealing cars at the age of like 12 and 13. And I know he had a bad childhood, but there's a difference between having a rough childhood to being a, a horrendous, like vicious human being. Absolutely. Um, you know, Sweat was a kid that went right into foster care uh, in uh, the early years. Um, he had a horrifying childhood, um, but through his teen years, he just continued to make uh, uh, judgment calls that were, were, were really poor, and those continued to cost him his freedom. And uh, into his uh, early 20s, uh, he just continued to uh, up his game. And uh, that landed him in uh, New York State's largest maximum security prison, Clinton Correctional, after he had uh, killed a deputy sheriff. Well, it was deputy sheriff uh, Kevin, was it Tarazi? I, I don't uh, want to just... Kevin Tarcia out of Broome County. And do me a favor, describe, because that's one of the most gruesome murders I've ever heard of, and a murder of a police officer. Can you describe what actually put him in Clinton? Because this is, when people hear this, and this is what bothered me the most on the news, when they escaped, you just hear escaped prisoners, and no matter who you are, you're always like, hey, that's kind of cool they broke out. Then you hear cop killer, and you're like, okay, this guy's a, a bad human. But the thing he did to the deputy sheriff, can you even describe what he did? It's, it'll make your stomach turn. So in, in July 4th of 2002, uh, David Sweat and two co-defendants uh, had plotted to uh, burglarize a gun store just across into the uh, state of Pennsylvania, just across the New York state border. Uh, it was known as Messes Fireworks in Great Bend, Pennsylvania. So David Sweat and his two uh, cohorts went into Great Bend, Pennsylvania, where they looked for a vehicle to steal. They went to the local Ford dealership where they were able to steal a uh, recently traded in pickup truck. They removed the pickup truck uh, from the dealership, brought it back into the Kirkwood, New York area, approximately 15 minutes from the, uh, the Kirk, uh, from uh, Great Bend, Pennsylvania. Okay. That's where the three of these individuals jumped into that pickup truck, returned to Great Bend, Pennsylvania, where they utilized that truck to, as a battering ram, uh, using it to uh, bust the front doors of Mess's Fireworks, where they stole uh, knives, handguns, as well as long guns. They returned back to New York State, quick 15-minute trip. Uh, they were at a little park in Kirkwood, New York, where they were moving the weapons from the stolen pickup truck into Sweat's personal uh, souped-up little Honda. In the process of moving the weapons, they had observed a vehicle approaching them. They looked at the vehicle, and the light configuration was that similar of a, of a uh, sheriff's vehicle. And they assumed it was a sheriff's vehicle. They took cover, uh, hiding in the shadows. <clears throat> and lo and behold, it was. It was a Broome County Deputy Sheriff Kevin Tarcia, uh, just happened to be patrolling in that particular area. And uh, he pulled into the parking lot, put his vehicle in a position where he could illuminate uh, the, the vehicles. He stepped out of the patrol uh, vehicle, stepped in front of the patrol vehicle where he was ambushed by David Sweat. Sweat came out of, uh, from hiding with a Glock in one hand and AR in the other and uh, pelted the deputy with uh, 15 rounds. One round slipped up underneath the bulletproof vest of the deputy, knocking him to the ground. Sweat at that time jumped in his Honda Accord and ran over the deputy sheriff as he was struggling on the ground to get back to his feet, dragging the deputy sheriff across this asphalt parking lot quite a distance. 
until the deputy finally emerged out from underneath the vehicle still alive. At which time, one of Sweat's co-defendants and Sweat had gone and approached the deputy, utilizing his own handgun, and basically assassinated the uh, deputy sheriff with two shots to the head. While the sheriff was in a defensive position with his hands up, trying to protect his face and, and head from the shot. The definition of human garbage, that's basically what you can yeah, say. Yeah, without a doubt. Absolutely without a doubt. Not a lot of sympathy from me. Yeah, I don't, but you know what? <clears throat> like we said uh, there's a lot of crimes that people do have sympathy for, like people, not guys like you and I, but people who root for the bad guy, who root for the bank robber. When you do this vicious killing of someone, no one really has sympathy for you. No, and understand, this was just a long history of a criminal behavior. Um, this wasn't like this wasn't his first merry-go-round with law enforcement. Um, he, he was a frequent flyer, and law enforcement knew who he was. They had had multiple... Uh, dealings with him he was definitely not a, a blimp on the radar he was definitely a, a player and the other gem in this case richard matt another low-life career criminal rapist and a snitch this guy was everything he was a rapist a snitch he was another bad human being and the only thing that you've missed though he was a master of manipulation but again yes richard matt again horrible home uh, went right into foster care as an infant for god's sakes um, and was afforded uh, an opportunity in foster care. He was in some wonderful homes, um, but unfortunately, he just kept on screwing it up. Uh, that, that's a sad reality of what uh, Richard Matt was. And his criminal history started uh, pretty quick, pretty early, uh, with uh, burglaries and uh, robberies. Um, uh, he had an allegation of rape in there. I mean, he just he was again. Uh, here's a guy that had spent, uh, this was, when he ended up at Clinton Correctional, that was his third state bid uh, in the States, and he had actually done time in Mexico for a murder as well. So, yeah, he was, again, definitely not a not a nice guy. Yeah, these two gems, it's funny how you can just say it so matter-of-factly, yeah, he was in Mexico jail for killing somebody. He killed people. This guy, he was a oh, murderer yeah. before this. Well, ironically, he had fled to Mexico after the killing of uh, the uh, New York State uh, businessman, Mr. Rickerson. And uh, when Matt knew that law enforcement was getting close to him, he uh, basically stole his stepbrother's vehicle, fled to the Mexican border, crossed, and it was over in Mexico. He was in a um, bar, club, whatever you want to call it, uh, observed a, a U.S. businessman with a wad of cash, Followed that businessman into the uh, men's room where he stabbed him repeatedly, um, stole the cash, made his way out, and was captured quite quickly. And uh, spent basically nine years in the Mexican prison after he was found guilty. When he came back stateside, of course, he was going to stand trial for the Rickerson murder. And they had asked him, how many times did you stab that man in Mexico? And with a Cheshire smile, Matt's comment was, <laughs> until he stopped moving. That's cold. Cold. Absolutely cold. You mentioned uh, the crime he was running from. Uh, William Rickerson's the seventy mid-70s. He's the one who gave this rapist and snitch career criminal chance. He gives him a job. Let me Correct. get on your feet. Can you describe the torture? Because I didn't think it was possible to out-scumbag David Sweat, but tell everyone what uh, Mr. Matt did. So Matt was a two-time loser, um, and Mr. Rickerson was aware of that, and yet Rickerson still gave him a, a play and still gave him an opportunity to work for him. Rickerson owned like a food processing plant where they would take um, 
food items that were close to being outdated and they would wholesale them out at a, at a greatly discounted price because the expiration date was so close. Um, what happened, unfortunately, was uh, Matt was taking those items and he had set up his own business and, and he was selling them to an assortment of different locations. Um, his cost was nothing because he was stealing it from Mr. Rickerson. Some business. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's a beauty, right? So <laughs> Rickerson gets wind of it and cuts bait with Matt. And Matt has it in his head that Rickerson owes him something. And, and needless to say, uh, in December of 07, um, Matt and his co-defendant go to Mr. Rickerson's house, knock on the door during the late evening hours. Rickerson answers the door where he's brutally attacked by Matt and the co-defendant. Uh, Matt's looking for these great sums of money that he feels that Rickerson should have. Rickerson tells these guys, I don't have any great sums of money. Um, they, they rummage through the house, they find nothing. So long story short, they take uh, Mr. Rickerson, duct tape him, throw him in the back end of a vehicle, and they go on a 27-hour cross-the-state trek. Uh, they go across Pennsylvania into Ohio and back, uh, repeatedly stopping, repeatedly uh, beating Mr. Rickerson, asking him, where's the money, where's the money? Uh, they were utilizing um, a device known as the club that a lot of people utilize for the uh, to lock their steering wheels in position mm -hmm. to help uh, them from losing their vehicles uh, from an auto theft. R Mr. Rickerson was continuously beaten with that uh, that particular device. Finally, after they had gone uh, on this ride, they came back into New York State. Uh, Matt was extremely frustrated. His co-defendant was frustrated. And they're arguing, and they're arguing with Rickerson as they pop open the trunk. Where's the money? And um, Rickerson's like, I have no money. And at that basic point, Matt reaches in and just simply snaps Mr. Rickerson's neck, thus killing him. And he wasn't done there, but just killing him, right? Right. So oh. the body is, is hidden next to the Niagara River, pile of brush, debris, um, December month. So it's cold. Um, they hide it with the uh, the brush and the lumber that's there. And then Matt comes back a few days later with a hacksaw and takes the body and, and takes the hacksaw and dismembers Mr. Rickerson, throwing the assorted body parts into the Niagara River, uh, thus disposing of the body. Uh, a few days later, uh, some folks happened to come across uh, body parts along the, uh, the shoreline of the Niagara River and then the investigation spirals from the missing person reports to uh, the homicide. And uh, it needless to say, it takes a turn. Uh, Matt is looked at hard. And then Matt, of course, flees, as we discussed earlier. I have a personal question because while I'm reading the book, you know, I make my little notes and stuff. His co-conspirator was like a 20-year-old, kind of an innocent kid. You said he wanted to be a cop, he, and yet he got kind of dragged into this murder. Did you ever get to interview him, or what happened to him? No, I never talked to his co-defendant's name was Bates, Lee Bates. Never talked to Bates. Uh, I didn't want to get sidetracked. I mean, both these guys had enough characters that they, they traveled with. I, I didn't want to get down too far down the rabbit hole uh, chasing Bates down. There was something that Bates had made comment, though, during trial and uh, during his interviews with law enforcement, and that was and that played a key role in, in the further discussions in the book, that Richard Matt <clears throat> had told Bates, you don't want to rat me out, you don't want to give me up to law enforcement, because if you do, I will come back and I will find you, and, and I will kill you, and I will kill your family, I'll kill your dog, I'll kill everything and everyone around you that you have any feelings for. 
Um, Matt was not the guy that you wanted to cross. Um, he he was he made no bones about it. He was the guy that if you if you crossed him or if you left him hanging, um, he was definitely going to come back and get his pound of flesh without a doubt. And that you know that comes back into the story as as you go further into the book. So obviously both of them get life in prison justifiably, correct? Correct, and both of them end up in New York State's largest maximum security prison, which is Clinton Correctional Facility, located in Clinton County, uh, approximately um, 30 miles from the Canadian border, approximately 15 miles from the uh, New York State-Vermont uh, line, at the very, very top of New York State. Did you watch the sh- uh, Showtime sh- uh, show, Danamora? I did. What did you think of it personally? Now, remember, I have to keep stressing this. You live up there. You were inside. You had every kind of aspect. You were the go-to guy. What did you think of that show? Um, you know, the, the photography was absolutely beautiful, but then again, the, the Adirondack mountains and the foothills of the Adirondacks are absolutely beautiful. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, and the acting was, was wonderful. They had just absolutely wonderful, talented folks doing what they did. Unfortunately, their, their script was as far as I'm concerned, and in my opinion is worth absolutely nothing. But as far as I'm concerned, the script was a, a remake of Shawshank. They were trying to portray these two guys as, you know, budding artists. They were pretty nice fellows, just misunderstood. <laughs> and 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 as far as I'm concerned, it was they were trying to do, Mr. Stiller was trying to do a remake of Shawshank. Mm-hmm. And nothing could be further from the truth. These are two convicted killers, cold-blooded killers. And Andy Dufresne in Shawshank was not. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the way that they presented that that series is the first seven or eight, or excuse me, I mean, the first uh, four or five episodes, they just showed these two guys that were struggling to get out of this big bad prison where all the racist prison guards were, and um, they were just misunderstood artists and pretty nice fellows if you were to watch the show. And Charles, it was so cold up there. You felt so bad because it was so cold in the winter. They tried to make them halfway sympathetic. Oh, absolutely. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah, everything was going against these guys. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. It's, it's We live up here. It's 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 northern New York. It's just like Wisconsin and all those other northern states, you know. It's a little frosty. Michigan's got the same problems we've got. Vermont, Maine, it's a little frosty sometimes. It's called winter. Uh, you'll be behind those walls in all different prisons and stuff. The fraternization, is there a thin line between uh, professionalism, friendship, and fraternization between the guards and the prisoners? It's a thin line, correct? Well, I, I look at it this way. I always, when I was inside and working in the facilities, I always treated the inmates with with respect. And as long as I was treated the same way, we always got along just fine. Um, there was never any friendship there. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, when you go down that uh, path of friendship, you end up in the same quagmire that Joyce Mitchell ended up in, which was the uh, the third character in, in our book, Denimora. Um Professionalism will, will take you a long ways. Uh, you, you give them whatever they got coming to them. New York State's very specific in their uh, directives and policies mm-hmm. as to what the inmate population mm-hmm. is entitled to, and we discuss that in the book a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't have a problem with that. I absolutely don't have a problem with that. Um, but I'm, I'm not there to be their friend. I'm there for strictly, basically three things. I'm there for their care, custody, and make sure that we maintain control of them, pure and simple. Officer Palmer was the fourth character in the book, and he had 27 years on the job literally threw it all away and we'll get to that in a minute once you cross that line and just do anything illegal whether it be make a phone call or give the inmate like they showed in the showtime thing some paint 
you lost all control over them. Now they own you, correct? Correct. It, it begins that slippery slope. And one of the things that we tell our staff members is that if you have crossed that line, if you've made that mistake um, and you've given them something or done something, you know what? It, it, you're still not sunk. There's still time to go to a supervisor, go to your administration and just say, hey, listen, I think I might be in a little bit of trouble and here's what's happened. And, and take your licks. If it's something that's um, not uh, a crisis, then it can be resolved and you'll get a counseling and you'll get more training. Um, but we, we don't tell our staff that if you make a phone call for an inmate or, or do give them a chunk of chocolate or something that um, you're going to be disciplined and you're going to lose your job. That, that's not how it works. Is it? I know you said you never came close, but you're behind those those walls of them, sometimes eight hours, sometimes at overtime, 12, 15 hours, you might start talking to one of them about sports or whatever. And then slowly, you know, two men are talking. Did you ever see yourself slowly or did you see other, uh, ever see other COs get slowly, maybe a little too close with the prisoners? Um, I can tell you my personal experience. I have mm -hmm. nothing in common with these guys that are incarcerated other than we both walk on our hind legs type of a scenario. <laughs> um, as far as me talking sports or, or getting any kind of a chitty chatty with them, if I want to get chitty chatty with anybody, I'll pick up the phone and talk to the guy that's working in the housing unit next door to me or, or call someone else and, and visit with them for 15 minutes um, if I'm really beyond you know the boredom point. Um, but as far as sitting there and carrying on a conversation and, and trying to compare which one's the best sporting team and baseball, football, or whatever. No, that's that's not a that's not a slippery slope that I was willing to go down. Uh, you mentioned like painting and artists. They tried to portray these guys as uh, aspiring artists. Was Richard Matt a real good artist, or was he like a prison artist, like he was good for prison? Because they made um, it seem like this guy was the next, next Da Vinci. Yeah, Matt had, without a doubt, a, a, a talent. Um, it's unfortunate that he, he wasted it while he was in prison. Uh, it's too bad they didn't do something with it while he was out on the street, but he definitely had uh, a little bit of talent there. Um, Sweat, he was a he was a prison artist. He was one of those guys that uh, had nothing but time on his hand, and eventually he would uh, be able to draw something without a doubt and and paint it and and uh, you know make it look like what it's supposed to be, I guess. But uh, Matt did have without a doubt a little bit of talent, and uh, he had a, a ton of art that was out there. Uh, and if you Google him, you'll find that he's got a, a ton of stuff. And I always find it weird, like people who collect the murderabilia, like the John Wayne Gacy paintings. I, I feel that's kind of weird, don't you? Yeah, I, I could, again, you know, it's I, I got the I got a, a buddy back here, the, the prison guard that um, um, when Matt and Sweat were on the run, of course, they pilfered a lot of these different camps. And this particular guy, this one particular camp belonged to a prison guard. Um, and he had a flask that was taken from the camp. When Matt was captured and um, um, challenged by uh, Bortec agents, the flask was in his possession. And in the crime photos of Matt's body, the flask is just above his head in the photos. And the kid just got the flask back a few months ago. And he was like, oh, my God. He goes, I got people already pushed up on me trying to buy this flask. And I'm like, oh, my God. And, and that, really? that holds true to what you're saying. Um, there's people out there that want this stuff. Yeah, I think it was in Milwaukee. Uh, police officers got fired. They sold like Jeffrey Dahmer's like refrigerator door handle or something, and they got oh, fired yeah. from that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, inmates uh, sweats ID was a popular item. Uh, <laughs> they were having an awful tough time uh, 
keeping him uh, with ID cards. Those were getting uh, made and sent out of the facility as quick as they could make them. Uh, everybody wanted a souvenir. So, yeah, you've got that. Unfortunately, you've got those those people out there looking for that stuff. And the fourth character, I think she's the main character of the show, good old Tilly, Joyce Mitchell. Uh, wow. She kind of leaves you speechless, doesn't she? Yeah, she's a beauty. Yeah, where do you where do you where do you start with Joyce Mitchell? Oh my goodness! You know, here, here's a woman that started working for Corrections in 2008, uh, March of 2008, and within their first year or so, um, her fellow staff members were noticing behaviors uh, that were absolutely inappropriate. And to you and me, or, well, not to me, but to, to people out in the street, they would say, "Well, my God, what's so inappropriate about her behaviors?" And some of them being she would cook brownies or cookies and bring them in and pass them amongst the inmates. Uh, or she'd have packaged candy and she would be giving the inmates, you know, some of the hard candies or whatever. But this, unfortunately, in this industry sends the wrong message. And this is basically where it started. It was as simple as, as passing out hard candies or having extra cookies and brownies in her lunch pail that she would pass out amongst the inmates. And in her head... She had made up her mind that, oh, my God, well, it will make these guys work harder for me and they'll be better workers for me in the tailor shop. And all it was doing was setting the stage for her to be manipulated. And, and Matt, being the master of manipulation, was, uh, was able to watch that behavior and capitalize on it without a doubt, resulting in this escape in 2015. That just shows such vulnerability. It's a difference when a teacher brings in some cookies and stuff convicted killers these are the hardest dudes in the world and you're like oh let me get their compliance by buying them that shows such weakness right and and unfortunately she was trained to not be doing that and not be you know sharing personal information we, we were discussing earlier you know do you talk to them about favorite sports teams or whatever see that's that slippery slope because you're sharing with them information that they don't need to don't need to know um, our, our name tags don't have our first names on them for a particular reason. Uh, we're not there to discuss that we have family. We're not there to discuss that our marriage is rocky or not rocky or is rock solid. We're not there to discuss what our favorite rock band is or any of that other silly crap. We're, we're not, that's not the premise of why we're there. Um, and, and Joyce Mitchell was given that same training and it's worked for thousands and thousands of staff members in New York state. But unfortunately, Joyce just didn't quite get up to speed on that. Working inside those walls as a protector, basically as a gatekeeper, beyond dangerous. So when guys get cushy jobs in there, inside the tailor rooms as a supervisor, that's like one of the prize gigs. Tilly was, they saw such bad things were going to happen. They were leaving their cushy gigs just to get away from her. And nothing, nothing was happening to her. Why was that? Well, unfortunately, Tilly's... Um, fellow employees had seen the behavior and they had addressed the behavior. Um, and, and unfortunately, New York state had a hiring freeze where they weren't hiring any employees uh, in these positions. And again, when Tilly's behaviors were observed, her supervisors would come back to her and they would utilize the tools that we have available to them. They started out with verbal counseling, saying, Tilly, you, you can't be doing this. Your behavior is inappropriate. It's sending the wrong message. You have to change the way you're doing business. And she would change for a short period of time, and then she'd go right back to the silly nonsense that she was doing again. Um, as soon as 2012, she actually received a counseling memo. So it actually, she was put on paper um, in basically three years and change 
that her behavior was inappropriate. Um, and she pushed back. She dug her heels in and she pushed back. Uh, 2013, her performance evaluations from her immediate supervisors reflected the fact that, again, her, her performance and her attitudes with the inmates and her interaction with the interview, uh, inmates was absolutely, totally inappropriate. Um, and what did Tilly do? Her and her husband marched straight up to see the superintendent of the facility and lodged a complaint that the supervisor was biased and was picking on her. Uh-huh. And thus, Corecraft supervision and the facility's supervision uh, basically were trying to figure out what the hell do we do with her? And unfortunately, Corecraft, understand, was a $50 million a year business for New York State. New York State's inmate population generates in the neighborhood of $50 million worth of business that goes back to help offset the cost of running prisons. So needless to say, uh, Corecraft was, and again, with a hiring freeze, Corecraft was in no position to replace her. So basically, it appears that the decision was made that a, a half-ass employee was better than no employee at all. And it all came right down to the dollars, which made, unfortunately, no sense. <laughs> I like that little play on words there, Charles. There you go. Yeah. She's in the tailor shop sneaking away to having sex, obviously. I know with David Sweat. Did she have sex with Matt also? Yeah, unfortunately, there's no documentation on Sweat. And again, if you go back to the Showtime series... It made it, it seem shows, like it was, yeah. Right, it shows Sweat and her um, bumping uglies and, <laughs> and doing all sorts of crazy crap. And there's no documentation, there's no statements. She never gave a statement, because I've gone through all of her uh, depositions. She never made any kind of a statement, whereas they had ever had any kind of relations. Uh, she was fascinated with the kid. But there's nothing there. And Sweat, same thing. I've gone through his um, uh, depositions and stuff, and nowhere does it say that they had sexual relations. Now, Mitchell sent him nude pictures, and they sent all sorts of love notes back and forth, but nothing there shows that they had any kind of relations. However, Matt was a different different beast. Um, Matt, there is documentation showing that there was relations there. But if you go back to the Ben Stiller production, he's got um, Mitchell and Sweat, having all this assorted affair. And um, it's kind of ironic because Mitchell balked from inside Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, where she's doing her time, as well as Sweat balked from, I believe he was at five points at the time, that that never took place. And both of them were kind of twisted with uh, the the production. Um, Again, I found nothing that supported it. So why it was there, I guess Hollywood, you know, would have to answer that question. Of course. The truth enough in this case is fascinating. Well, I have to twist it, but that's Hollywood for you. That's Ben Stiller, right? And I agree with you. Right, right. You know, as the saying goes, sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. And this one, you didn't have to exaggerate any of it. This story had more twists and turns than a country road, for God's sakes. Uh, Your book was, like I said, fascinating. And you described it perfectly how she started bringing in small things to them. Joyce would smuggle small things in there to them. Whether it be you know a flashlight, a pair of gloves, which is horrible enough, and then slowly got to alcohol. Now you see it, Richard Matt manipulating her. Then she starts bringing in tools for escape. She brought in mini hacksaws. And Absolutely. Pl- but but Charles, explain how she snuck them in because I'm reading this. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is like uh, you wouldn't believe this if I, Charles, if you and I watched this in a movie, we'd be like, come on, man, this is too fake. Well, that's and that's why I say, you know, this book and the nonfiction work that it is, there's no spin here. There's no bullshit here. It's just the truth. And and the truth, 
like I said, oh my God, as I got digging deeper and deeper into this thing, I couldn't believe it. So as we discussed, she'd started with the brownies and the cookies and the packaged candies, and she'd do the occasional new recipe. And she even brought in a Big Mac from McDonald's uh, out of Malone for these, these guys. And then in um, August of 2014, now I'll put that in perspective, August of 2014. So the escape took place in June of 15. August of 2014, Mitchell brings in two pairs of lighted glasses and a pair of exercise gloves. Now, the lighted glasses, a piece of those lighted glasses would be found in the subterranean tunnels. So this escape plot goes back at least a year prior to the, the escape. There, she's bringing in stuff that would be utilized for the... Um, the escape in August of 2014 for less than $10 off uh, Amazon. She had purchased um, two pairs of lighted reading glasses as well as some exercise gloves. Exercise gloves again were utilized uh, as they were chipping at the base of the um, perimeter wall. Uh, then um, throughout um, October of 14, right up until June of 15, Joyce Mitchell had also brought in over 70 containers of black and or cayenne pepper into the facility, the introduction of this kind of contraband. And again, for the premise of the escape, but over 70 containers from October of 14 up into June 15th, as well as the assorted uh, Bacardi 151, wild turkey, etc. So let's go to your question now. Hacksaw blades. Joyce Mitchell... Uh, would go to the local Walmart store in Malone, purchase her hacksaw blades for, I think it was $6, if my memory serves me correctly, um, snap them in half, put them in some hamburger, and smuggle them into the facility. Let the hamburger be frozen, um, and the uh, unfortunately, the hamburger would go into the facility, uh, be moved um, into uh, throughout the facility, and Matt would end up with it in his cell, defrost it, and these guys would have themselves uh, basically um, the six hacksaw blades to start with. Broken in half, it'd give them 12 different pieces. Give me a typical day for a guy on, like I know they were in the honor block, so give me a Richard Matt typical day from morning to night. So, again, now you've touched on honor block, and just a little note for your, your viewers and listeners. Um, the book was originally named Honor Block because these two Cold-blooded killers, and this is a concept that, that the people need to kind of let that sink in for a second. These two cold-blooded killers were in an honor block. A good behavior thing. A guy who killed, oh. a co killed a cop, ran over a cop. The other person killed two people. The second one was – the first one was a 76-year-old man that he chopped up on an honor block. On an honor block. Yeah, that's yeah. – <laughs> yeah, so let that sink in for a little yeah. bit. You know, um, so anyway, um, it, it's it's frightening that you know these guys are just they would they'd start their morning routine. They'd get up, they'd they'd break for chow. They they pop them out of their cells. They go to chow. Uh, from chow, they'd go right to programs. So in this case, they're going to go right to the tailor shop. They're going to work into the tailor shops until lunchtime. Then they're going to um, stop them, do an accountability of all the tools, run them to chow again. And then after they're done uh, feeding these guys, they'll run them back into the um, tailor shops where they'll be done work by three-ish, a little after three in the afternoon. 
And then they've basically got from uh, the three o'clock all evening to do whatever they want to do. Go to recreation, hang out in their cells, paint, uh, carve at the back wall to break through their cells into the catwalk <laughs> while everybody else is at recreation. You know, whatever it was that kind of spun the wheels for them. While the majority of the inmate population, unfortunately, would be at recreation, especially in the winter, they'd be inside that housing unit oh. down on the, the first floor for recreational activities. These two guys would stay up in their cells. One would hack away at the uh, back wall of the cell while the other one stood watch. And then about 15 minutes later, they would trade uh, duties and the other one would go to watch and go. the other one would be cutting. Charles, is uh, the honor block itself, that's obviously, uh, I guess, promotion. That's a good thing. The tailor shop, is that a desirable job thing that people want? Yeah, tailor shop was one of the... Um, it's where the workers would go, guys that were going to work all day um, type of a thing. Um, it was probably one of the better paying jobs in the facility. Um, and the key word being paying jobs. Inmates get paid to go to work. They get paid to go to school. They get paid for whatever they're doing while incarcerated. They don't get paid a lot, but they, they do get paid. And, and the tailor shop was one of the better paying jobs. Um, and they made some pretty good money there. Uh, money that they would put in their commissary to buy uh, groceries while they're inside the uh, the facility or whatever they wanted. They have the hacksaws. You said like while other people are watching TV, playing games, reading books, they're ha uh, hacking away trying to escape. You said it, I think in the book, they got like one or two inches a night on the wall, yet they kept you know being persistent and kept going. It was a long, tedious thing. How long did it take them to – from that first scrape on the wall to get to, I guess, like the boiler room where all the pipes were, when, when were they outside of their cell? From the day they started um, scratching at the back of their cells to the day that they breached was 133 days, Mike. 133 days from start to finish for them to utilize nothing but hand tools, um, utilizing hacksaws, um, a crude chisel that they had developed, and I, we talk about that in the, the book, mm -hmm. you know, what they had They'd found a piece of re-rod, made it into a crude chisel. Um, during their scavenger hunt, they had found some other assorted um, items that they utilized as tools. But basically, for them to escape using nothing but hand tools, 133 days to escape from New York State's largest maximum security prison to their freedom. When they actually left their cell area, um, you described it perfectly in the book. It was all pipes. What exactly was that room where they – because you know that everyone knows now they went through the pipes. They saw the famous pictures and the videos. What what was that? That was just the inside of the prison, the boiler room? What was that? So once they, they breached the back of their cells, the area behind their cells, there's a catwalk back there. And basically all the, the plumbing and the electrical, uh, the cable for their uh, cable television, uh, that runs on both walls in that area behind their cells. What the inmates did is they made their way down that catwalk. Uh, down behind their assorted cells that were on those that particular block. And then they wiggled between the catwalk uh, down basically four stories down into the subterranean tunnels. Subterranean tunnels is where you're going to find your heavier pipes for heating. Uh, your heavier pipes, are, the pipes are going to start getting bigger for the sewage that's running the sewage. The pipes are going to be bigger for the water that's brought up into the block. And they just continued to run this maze of subterranean tunnels it took them a, a number of uh, attempts. It was just like the, ma the the mouse in the maze. And they just kept on making their way through this uh, the underground subterranean tunnels of the facility until they found and came across the, um, the heating pipes that um, were used to run heat into the blocks throughout the facility. 
And what happens is those pipes would increase in size as you got closer to the perimeter wall. And as you, you know, once they pierced the perimeter wall, they got even bigger as they went down into the physical plant that was located basically two and a half blocks from the facility outside of the secure uh, perimeter fence and, and wall of the facility. Charles, how long were they in prison? I know they're both doing life. How long were they in prison before they started the escape? Um, Sweat arrived at Clinton Correctional in 03. I'm going by memory on that one. Okay. And Matt was there in 08, if my memory serves me correctly. So they hadn't been there, you know, I mean, less than 10 years for both of them. So let's, let's catch everybody up. We have David Sweat, career criminal, kills a cop, runs him over, uh, Richard Matt, uh, another rapist did everything else. He kills his old boss, chops him up. They're both sent away. They have one boy, uh, one guard on the inside, Officer Palmer, who's kind of buddy buddy with them, kind of getting he's getting stuff from them, correct? Yeah, Palmer. Palmer never knew the escape was going on. Palmer was at the end of his career, was getting a little sloppy. He checked uh, out. Yeah, he, he um, basically. He was just finishing up his time as easy as possible. He kind of got sucked in with Matt in the manipulation. Matt had told Palmer that, you know, I've got your back. If this place ever tips over, if there's ever a riot, don't worry, man. I got your back. Nobody's ever going to touch it. Nobody, nobody's ever going to hurt you. I, I got you covered. And Matt also would be feeding Palmer information. Uh, he was the, uh, the guy that would rat out everybody. You know, so-and-so's got a weapon. So-and-so's got drugs. And unfortunately, Palmer got kind of sucked in on that. Um, my 25-year career showed me that if an inmate was quick to give somebody else up, it was because, unfortunately, that guy was competition. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. So-and-so, yeah, so-and-so had drugs and he rat- got ratted out because he was competition with the guy that was ratting them out. So, And that's how they got rid of their competition. And, uh, you know, if so-and-so had a weapon, it's because, you know, they were pushing up on somebody that they knew with the weapons. So... So, Charles, 100 and something days, they finally break through the wall. In Shawshank Redemption, Rita Haywood was the famous uh, poster they hung up there. How'd they block? Because, you know, they, I know they're on honor block, but they have cell searches. How'd they cover this hole? So, what, what would happen is once the holes were breached into the back of their cells, um, New York State's real big on, you know, maintaining your cells. We want your cells to look good. And what happens is that the state hands out paint to the inmate population like chiclets. You know, they're, they're, everybody should have a, you know, a pint of paint available. So if you have a chip, you can touch it up. And what was basically happening is, is these guys would go out at night, wiggle around through the subterranean tunnels, come back early morning hours, put everything back in place and actually take like a clear packing tape and put it right over the, um, the seam. Or they would use, they also had, um, because they were the budding artists, they also had like a, a clay type material that they would fill that actual hole in and then they would just touch it up with that, that paint, which was a water-based paint that would quickly dry and it would blend in beautifully. So that, that, that cut that was leading to the way out was quickly camouflaged and then they would just simply put the bed back in place, put a towel or two here, a little bit of cell clutter, and you would never see it. Everything looked perfectly in, in place. And during this whole escape, the tedious, every night, inch here, hole there, 
Joyce Mitchell is supposedly getting updates on what they're doing. She's in on this plan. We're saying Officer Palmer is not in on this plan, but Joyce is 100% all in on this plan, right? Correct. Joyce Mitchell's in right from day one when she delivers the hacksaw blades. So Joyce has, has been in basically un, maybe unknowingly since August of 14. But when they start bringing in uh, October of 2014, when they start bringing in the cayenne pepper, um, you know, she, she's all in. And then um, basically in January of 15, she's bringing in security screwdriver bits. So she, she's bringing in all sorts of contraband and she's getting daily updates from the inmates as to their progression. Once the hacksaws are put in place uh, in February of 2015, um, she's getting daily updates as to the progression, that they're in the subterranean tunnels, that they've breached the cells, that they're wiggling their way in throughout those subterranean tunnels and trying to figure it out and find their way out. And, and she would walk by the administration offices every day on her way out when she turned in her keys. And at any day, she could have talked to a supervisor. If she had any fear for whatever, um, and, and just say, hey, you know what, this has gotten out of hand. And this is what we train our people. It's never too late to give it up. And uh, she chose not to. She, she took it right with her on that final day. And speaking of that final day, she had one job. She failed at her one job. Matt and Sweat actually escape maximum security, which is mind-blowing. And you kind of wish they weren't bad guys, so you can kind of feel a little good for them, like a taste of freedom. She had one job to pick them up at midnight, and she has a panic attack, and now they're stranded in the middle of the street, correct? Correct. They're, they're, um, they're stranded in the middle of Denimora, in the middle of God darn nowhere, Clinton County, um, standing there looking at each other at midnight going, you know, where the hell is she? And understand, here's a woman that had been supplying them with everything and anything that they've wanted since, again, um, back in uh, in. in 2014 you know she was bringing them stuff without hesitation so for her to leave them high and dry it was without a doubt probably a shocker to them but she absolutely left them high and dry another personal question for you during all your time behind the bars 25 years on the job anyone ever escaped from you no from from and never from a place you were even at no and nothing – how about a foiled attempt? Like, hey, we hear this guy might be escaping, and you find oh, out – eh. You've always got guys chipping away at something. Oh, absolutely. You've but always nothing, got guys nothing building – nothing of significance, right? Oh, yeah. You've always got a guy that's building a, a, a chunk of rope out of dental floss to – oh, yeah, they're out there. And you find hacksaw blades. You'll find uh, cell bars that have been cut through. Uh, you'll, have, you'll end up with missing tools that will reappear and – You'll see where they've been using them to try to chip away at a particular piece of, uh, you know, a secured doorway or a hallway to, to make their way out. Oh, absolutely. That happens on a daily basis, unfortunately. The last escape from uh, Clinton was over 100 years ago. Now these guys are out there in this nice, quiet community, and you described it perfectly in your book. Everyone who lives in that community has a connection to this jail, correct? Correct. Small, small town, USA. And now you have these two convicted hardcore criminals just out walking around explain because you explained lockdown in the prison like hey jail is on lockdown right now explain the lockdown that you guys went with the civilians went through well so the civilians knowing that these guys are out there 
it was kind of a rude awakening because, like, like you said, it had been a, basically a century prior before anyone had escaped from Clinton Correctional. Um, up uh, in the North Country, it had been quite a while since anybody had escaped from any of the facilities. And again, there was uh, as many as 13, 15 facilities at one time up in northern New York. Um, so an escape is not a regular thing. People battened down the hatches, and as the, the search for these two guys went on a little bit further, uh, of course, word got out as to who they were and what they were and how they were wired. Um, people that normally never had an outside light on were all of a sudden, you know, leaving lights on. Uh, as the helicopters would buzz overhead, uh, people weren't sleeping in their bedrooms anymore. The whole family would be sleeping in the living room. And um, dad would be with uh, a shotgun and, and mom would be nestled with the kids, you know, holding on to them with the family dog type of a thing. It, uh, it rattled a lot of cages without a doubt. The one thing that stood out for me was something with the mail. Didn't the mail not get delivered every day? There was something with the mail, right? Absolutely. Um, Complete roads would be shut down for days. Uh, There'd be a sighting or there'd be a piece of physical evidence that was found in a particular area. Um, And law enforcement would shut down that area for days while they searched outbuildings, while they searched countryside. Understand, unlike the city, we're in the foothills of the Adirondacks. You can drop an airplane up here and spend days looking for it. You can have people that get off trail, off one of the the hiking trails of of the peaks, Mm -hmm. and spend days looking for them. And you have people that get lost up here who want to be found (laughs) and sometimes aren't found. So it's it's this is dense woods. This is a whole different ballgame up here. Um, and, and it's pretty rugged country, needless to say. I'm going to go out on a limb after reading your book. Are you not a fan of Governor Cuomo? <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I, have, I have no disrespect at all for the governor. You know what? It, it's tough to pick on the politician. It really – or it's, it's easy to pick on it's the easy. politician. Right. Um, no, I, basically I'm like a baseball umpire. I'm just calling balls and strikes. And when I watch the behavior – and I listened after uh, I interviewed law enforcement as to the behavior and what had happened. That's simply what I wrote. I, I didn't have a, a horse in the race. I had no agenda. I just, I'm just telling you the, the conduct. And unfortunately, any, any job, if you've got a group of employees that are doing any job, I don't care what it is. I don't care if you're a, a police officer in New York City or a school teacher in Syracuse or a maintenance worker in Plattsburgh, New York. Any job, when the boss shows up, the boss screws shit up. You know, yes. people stop doing the normal routine. Uh, things get missed. People are too busy trying to, you know, kiss the boss's ass that they're not paying attention to detail, or it disrupts just the normal flow of things that should be done. And unfortunately, uh, when when politicians, and I don't care if it's the fine Governor Cuomo or whoever it is, goes to these areas when there's a crisis, you're right in the midst of a crisis, it's one distraction that's not needed and not necessary. And unfortunately, he served no purpose. It, it served no purpose whatsoever. It's just like when the superintendent shows up and you're trying to run a fire drill. If they want to watch the fire drill as a school teacher, then step off to the side and let us do what we're supposed to be doing. But don't be interacting with my people when they're trying to move people, you know, children out of a building. If you're in law enforcement and you've got a crime scene 
the last thing you want to see is the mayor of New York City wandering through the crime scene with his staffers, uh, picking up shit and looking at shit because it's a high-profile crime scene. It disrupts things and it destroys the crime scene. And unfortunately, this is what was being observed on this at this crime scene. And and I and I wrote about it in the book. You, you described it perfectly because I remember watching on TV and, you know, you got the heroes down there who are out there 20 hours in a row. My brother-in-law was up there. He, he's uh, on the CERT team up there and he was going crazy, not coming home for days in the water, freezing cold. And then you have, you know, the governor doing the photo op, like looking away from the cell, touching it. And I'm like, oh, that. And then they showed the escape route. And you, you mentioned, you know, like, why are they showing anyone the escape route they did? No one should know the insides of the prisons, what they look like. Right, right. And they did a complete video on yeah. the escape route and then released it. And you're just going, oh, my God, why would you do that? You know, and and again, the first thing that we teach correctional staff at the time of an escape or the time of an incident is this is a crime scene. And there's no reason for anybody to be wandering through a crime scene unless they're documenting and, and collecting physical evidence. And unfortunately, they had a huge crime scene, all the subterranean tunnels, the manhole. And, and what did we have? Unfortunate, unfortunately, we had an individual. And again, I'm not trying to beat up the governor. But unfortunately, we, we, had, we had the governor of New York State and staffers wandering through an entire crime scene at the total disbelief of the investigators that were trying to process the crime scene. Physical evidence had still not been collected and documentation had not been completed. And unfortunately we have people wandering through a crime scene and it's just, it's mind blowing from, from the professionals that were involved in this escape. If I didn't read the jacket of the book and realize you had a career in law enforcement as a judge doing everything, I knew you were a good guy. I'll tell you when, when, cause I remember watching, the press conferences and the governor was calling a cop killer and a guy who hacksawed someone up, Mr. Gentleman, sir. And I remember it was blowing my mind. I'm like, is he calling a convicted cop killer? A guy who chopped up a 76 year old elderly man, Mr. That this, these gentlemen need to be caught. I'm like, Oh my God. And I, once you wrote that, I'm like, this confirms it. This guy's a good guy. How can you call these people? They lose their status as gentlemen when they kill people. I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I have to agree with you on that, Mike. It's, um, uh, it is what it is. And if, if that makes me a prejudiced or if it makes me whatever, I guess then label me that particular color. But, you know, I agree with you. These guys lost the, the privilege of being given that respect, um, being called Mr. or Gentleman. Uh, these, are, these are two convicted felons. Uh, unfortunately, New York State has continued to, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, desensitize staff, I guess is the best way, uh, with their, we don't want to offend anyone. Um, when, when I started the business, we were called prison guards. Now they're called correction officers. So yeah. the younger guys, you know, if you call them a prison guard, they're all sorts of offended. But see, I'm an old timer, and we were, we were, we called ourselves prison guards because we you were, were just. You were proud of it. Yeah, that was your Yeah, job. we were some gnarly sons of bitches. You know? <laughs> Pure and simple. Um, and, and yeah, we, we held the title and we didn't have a problem with it. We weren't uh, we weren't trying to be politically correct and we weren't trying to, you know, hurt some snowflakes, uh, you know, feelings or something. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we were prison guards, pure and simple. But um, this the desensitization of staff is just unbelievable because uh, we started we used to call them convicts and then we moved to inmates. 
And then they, the state told us, well, you need to call them offenders because they don't like being called inmates. They don't well, like being called. <laughs> and they didn't like being called offenders um, because they were they thought they were being associated with sex offenders. So they didn't they didn't they pushed back on that. So then the state started calling them clients. Well, you bring in people that have never dealt with a criminal element and everyone's considered as a client. Um, it desensitizes staff and, and uh, it sends, unfortunately, the wrong message. Um, you, you treat them with respect. You give them whatever the state says they got coming from toothbrushes to medical care to recreation to clothing and good meals. Um, but I'm not going to bring them in brownies and cookies and chocolates and packaged candies and call them Mr. and hold their hands and sing Kumbaya. It's not going to happen in my time, Mike. So the governor calls the Mr. and gentleman as they're out. Their, you know, two and a half, three weeks on the run was pretty mundane. Nothing really spectacular happened to them. It was just them walking through the woods, correct? Correct. They, um, it's amazing that they were able to cover the distance that they covered, uh, go unnoticed. Um, they, they got off the beaten trail. Uh, we discussed one thing in the book that they were able to go in a particular direction without the use of a compass. And, and I'm not going to say what that is if you really want to know, but, but I've lived up in the North Country my whole life, and I was I was pretty amazed that they were able to pick up on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'll have to go back if you miss that. But they were able to go and keep the wind in their face and head in a particular direction uh, when Joyce Mitchell was a no-show. And then it wasn't until they started burglarizing camps that they were able to pilfer comfort, uh, compasses. And then when they got to um, Twisted Horn, of course, they took the topographical map. And they knew where basically everything was. They did have a brief uh, opportunity. Joyce Mitchell had smuggled in some maps for them. So they had a pretty good feeling for the lay of the land and what direction things were. And, uh, you know, it's amazing that they traveled in the direction that they traveled um, for the first week or so without the aid of a compass. I I was actually pretty impressed with that. We all, everyone knows the story now, which, uh, Bothers me because I like doing shows where I can kind of be a little vaguer, but with this, everyone knows the story. They probably saw the Showtime thing, and I just want to stress one thing. We talk so much about the case. It doesn't even scratch the surface of the research you did on the book. It really didn't because you got into details that obviously the show didn't get into, but no other shows got into. I thought your research and writing about them in the woods, like even though it was mundane to the viewer on TV, you put us in the scene of the woods, and it was just fascinating writing. It really was. Well, it was fascinating. It really was. And I have to give the devil his due on this. Uh, it was fascinating that these guys were able to wiggle around the um, the Adirondacks like they did, um, as well as they did, uh, unscathed, and uh, to make the ground that they made. Uh, it, it was. It was It was quite a feat. It really, it really was, especially with a small army of law enforcement looking for them. But again, as I said earlier, I've seen hikers that have gotten lost who have wanted to be found, <laughs> and, and unfortunately, they've they've succumbed to the elements. So, let me ask you this: We all know Richard Matt gets killed, David Sweat gets taken back into custody. David Sweat is he like a celebrity inside the prison walls now? Oh yeah, David Sweat's become basically he went from the guy with little to no misbehavior reports on his two bids. Now he's a pain right in the ass. And now, um, do, do the other prisoners respect him and like look up to him now? 
Well, understand there's a social standard and social setting in prisons, just like there is out in the street. Okay. And if you're a member of organized crime or if you're a cop killer, uh, they hold a little bit higher status right off the bat. Yeah. Uh, so you take that and couple it with the fact that he was able to escape from Clinton Correctional. Yeah, he does have some notoriety, without a doubt, uh, amongst the inmate population. Um, unfortunately, you know, you, when I listen to the interviews that they've done with him since, and I've I've listened, I've been able to get some of the different statements that he's made since. And of course, he's the only surviving member of the two that escaped. So now he's the smartest man. It was all his ideas. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of, you know, how that's kind of twisted a little bit. So unfortunately, don't don't believe everything that David Sweat tells you. I mean, you have to kind of listen to what he says and and be able to back it up. Both of the other characters who are originally good guys get arrested. Officer Palmer, he did his time at Clinton. Uh, Gene Palmer went, did, uh, he was ultimately charged with a misdemeanor. He did six months at the Clinton County jail. Um, he did his time. Um, he's still locally, you know, living locally. Um, and again, I, I emphasized it in the book and I'll emphasize it again. Now he never knew that there was yeah. an escape plot. Uh, unfortunately, what got Gene Palmer jammed up was his inappropriate behavior of moving the contraband in the facilities. And, and that's against the, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that's what got him into the, the, the quagmire that he's ended up in type of thing. Joyce Mitchell, no, Wait, she's doing state time. Charles, one she thing was on, all in. One thing on Officer Palmer, um, where he did his time in Clinton, how does his time work? He does, he's not in general population. Is he like just isolated by himself for six months? Where, where exactly he did his time at Clinton County Jail and how he, whether or not he was in general population, I never even dug into it. Okay, okay, um, okay. You know, my guess is he probably didn't go out into population, and if he did, it probably didn't last long. Uh, law, you know, law enforcement, correction officers, that's eh, kind of a, that's tough on those guys. You know, they sometimes are, are met with uh, a little bit more hostility in those facilities. So they have the, the facilities have an obligation to make sure that they don't end up with a mess on their hands. So uh, quite often those guys are put into a segregation unit of some sort. And what happened to good old Tilly? Joyce Mitchell. Tilly, Tilly went to Bedford Hills, New York State's only maximum security prison for females down in Bedford Hills. Uh, she just went through another parole hearing and was denied again, uh, which is actually quite amazing because New York State's parole board has been letting out all sorts of cop killers and uh -huh, assorted yeah. uh, dirt bags uh, for the last year or so. That's quite an agenda that they have, but we'll save that for the paperback version that's coming out here in March on, on Benamora. But um, Joyce will probably do most of her time. Uh, she'll get out a little bit early for just simple good time. Uh, okay. But for the most part, she's going to spend pretty close to seven years incarcerated. I was so disappointed, and we all know this happens everywhere. The brass, some guys who had no, who had unblemished records for 20-something years were, quote-unquote, forced to resign. That bothered me, and I know that you have to set examples, but they were completely clueless, and there was nothing that really could have been done, right? Well, you know, and here's the real tragedy and with what you're you're touching on. Let's go right to the superintendent of the facility. Weeks prior to this escape, weeks prior to this escape being the key words, the facility superintendent and administration had contacted Albany saying, we've just had a massive disturbance out in our yard. Something is wrong. Can't quite put our thumb on it, but we'd like to shut our facility down and do a facility-wide frisk. 
Now, the incident that they were referring to was there was a multiple, multiple man fight out in the, the North Yard at the correctional facility. Standard operating procedures in any maximum security prison, when you have a huge fight, is you shut the facility down and you do a facility-wide frisk. That's been normal standard procedures during my entire career. And whoever made the decision in Albany not to shut that facility down is the guy that gave Matt and Sweat the opportunity that they needed to escape. I, I When I do my presentations at, at bookstores and libraries and wherever we're invited to or do our presentation, I tell people that the inmate population, there's no way that these two inmates had breached their cells, were up and down those catwalks, were crawling up and down those cell blocks for three stories to get down into the subterranean tunnels and had done that for well over a hundred plus days that the inmate population did not know that those guys had breached the cells. Couple that with the inmate who lived next door to Matt who had received the brand new color TV the morning of the escape and then the food um, later on in that evening. And then of course, later on that evening, Matt would be vacating the cell. Um, it pretty much assures everyone that any he, he had commented to Matt, you know, what are you doing over there while Matt was hacking away at, at a cell wall? Um, the inmate population knew that these guys were wiggling their way out. And guys doing max time also know that they're still going to be there. And when two people come up missing, there's going to be hell to pay for one. Um, but they also know that you can't be the guy that gives it up because that's a good way to get yourself killed, especially if you're doing big time. So that disturbance to me was a telltale sign by the inmate population that, hey, we'll let the officers discover this escape, but we're not going to give it up, but we're going to do what we know is going to cause them to lock down the facility. And the facility never got locked down. So there, there's a huge, huge um, problem right there that somebody in Albany made the decision not to lock that facility down when the administration with well over a century of time on the job between Reset, the superintendent, Steve Brown, the depth of security, and Donnie Quinn, who was the first depth, there was over a century of experience among those guys, and they wanted to shut that facility down, and Albany bean counters said, no, it's going to cost too much in overtime. Oof. Yeah. You, you mentioned that big fight in the yard. So you're saying like a lot of times if something big happens like that, it's the inmates not saying, hey, let's get into a fight today to prove a point. But things are going on to sh kind of show signs. You can't be like, hey, CO, they're about to escape because then you'll probably get killed. But a Absolutely. fight occurring raises everyone's antennas like something might be going on here. So something's going on. Exactly. And and we tell our people, if you see all of a sudden, if, you know, if the facility is – uh, at the brink of having a gang war. All of a sudden, you're going to have all sorts of guys getting in little bullshit fights to get locked down. So they're not in general population. Or you're going to see a, a lot of guys going to the infirmary. Oh, I'm really, really, really sick, and I can't leave my... i got to go to the infirmary. i got to get off the housing unit. Um, you, you just have to You have to read the jail, and you have to listen to what's going on in the jail. And you, if you, you've done it long enough, you, you see this stuff unfold. Um, I, I worked in a lot of different facilities, and before the facilities had major disturbances, we had plenty of indicators that things were going going wrong, and, and you knew that the shitstorm was coming before it, it came. Um, so and, anything and, out of the norm, kind of like 
piques everyone like, hey, let's do a double t- – let's, let's be a little more assertive with our searches. Let's keep our eyes a little more open. Anytime anything's out of the norm, you step up a little bit. Absolutely. And then understand something. The inmate population, just because they're in jail, majority of the inmates that are incarcerated, they're just doing their time. You know, you've got a lot of guys that, you know, so they sell drugs. That's what they do for a living, pure and simple. They've got a family out on the outside. You know, you've got guys that do whatever it is that they've done. For the most part, they've got families out there. Um, You've got a small amount of people in in prison that are really the, the knuckleheads that are causing problems inside the facilities. But for the most part, most of the people that are incarcerated are just looking to do their time. Uh, they, they really are. They're not looking to get noticed. They're not looking to cause problems or hate and discontent. Very small numbers are, are people causing problems. Uh, and if you just if you watch and listen and, and pay attention to what's going on in your facilities, you can see this stuff unfold well before it, it happens. Let me ask you one more question about this escape. If Tilly, if Joyce Mitchell, uh, Joyce Mitchell shows up at midnight at the desired location, what do you, in your opinion, your expert opinion, thinks happens to this whole case? So if Joyce Mitchell had shown up, I figured that you'd have found probably two bodies out there in Dickinson at Mitchell's home. You'd have found Lyle Mitchell dead and you'd have found Joyce Mitchell dead. Uh, and those two guys would have taken the vehicle and kept it on there. They, they had their path. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joyce Mitchell was just their means of transportation. She served no other purpose. Yeah, than they that. were never taking her with them. Like, come Why on. hell no? They, they didn't need her for a squat. What purpose was Joyce Mitchell going to do other than transportation? She had brought, brought everything that they needed in. They had provided, uh, she had provided them with everything they needed to, to breach that facility. Once they're outside of that facility and in the comforts of her vehicle, they got everything they need, and they've got a heck of a head start. Um, they breached that facility at midnight. If she had been there, wasn't going to be discovered until um, 5.30 in the morning. Five and a half hours from Clinton Correction Facility, you're on the Pennsylvania-New York State border. Um, so you're outside of New York State within the five and a half hours. Yeah, and they, listen, they had a plan. I don't know. I think eventually, obviously, everyone gets caught. They had a five and a half hours is a hell of a jump start. Oh, heck of a heck of a jump start. Um, but unfortunately, the U.S. Marshals will tell you there's a lot of them out there that still haven't been found. Uh, there's a lot of guys that have escaped from prisons mm-hmm. and uh, that are still on the, that list that the, the Marshal Service is still looking for. Um, a lot of these guys can get in the wind, uh, you know, without a doubt. You mentioned the books coming out again in March, the paperback. Any other books or any other ideas? Like, did this was it a one-time hobby thing, or, you know, one and done? Or are you going to think about doing something else? Well, we're just going to wait and see what the, the future brings us. We're we're going to finish up this paperback version. We'll go from there, and then we're just going to, you know, I've looked at a couple of other projects. I've had people contact me for projects. Um, you know, it, it's uh, it took my dander to get up before I wrote this one, but it was a lot of work. But I've got this beautiful little girl up here in northern New York with me that I've promised that we would do a little cross-country uh, trek. And we're going to do uh, go look and see the Tetons again and go back to Yellowstone and see some redwoods. And, and uh, you know what? Um, I'm looking forward to a break at, at about this point in time. And uh, I'd like to go back to Yellowstone and see the Tetons and, again, the redwoods and go over and see the Pacific Ocean and wiggle across the, the great states here for a little bit. And how about you make your way down to New York City again so we can grab a beer and meet up uh, face-to-face? Now, that we will do. That we will do. Unfortunately, we missed you on our last trip down there. We had some great uh, great conversations with a couple of other authors uh, just a few weeks ago down in uh, Bryant Park. We had a real fantastic group down there. 
Um, but yeah, this is, we've been on the city a couple of times now, and I've been privileged with rubbing elbows with some really talented folks. I'll tell you, Charles. Here's my ignorance. Uh, my brother-in-law lives, I guess, like an, an hour away from me, and I think that is like the furthest thing upstate. So when I messaged you, I'm like, hey, he lives at this location. You're like, Mike, that's uh, eight hours for me. I'm yeah. nine hours away. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, I'm about four hours to Albany, and by train, I think we're another pretty close to three hours down into the city, into uh, midtown Manhattan. So, yeah, we're, um, you know, seven and a half hours probably to, to – uh, uh, Penn Station down in uh, into the city. So, yeah, it's quite a hike. Do me a favor. Plug your book, plug your website, where they can get the book and everything else, please. So, again, our book is uh, Denimora by Charles A. Gardner, which is uh, Denimora, Two Escaped Killers, Three Weeks of Terror, and the Largest Manhunt Ever in New York State. And you can find me at uh, charlesagardner.com. Mike, it's been an absolute uh, privilege and pleasure visiting with you. Thank you for having us. Charles, this was an absolute blast. When I saw the book, I'll tell you this real quick. Um, I was in the library and I saw the book. I'm like, okay, cool. Let me check out the book. I put it on Goodreads. They got a good review. I was two pages into it. I'm like, I need to. I need whoever this author is. I need to speak to him. I emailed him. You wrote right back. And I don't just say this. I enjoyed this book. Gave it five stars. It was one of the best books I've read of the year. I uh, my goal every year is to read a book a, a week. Um, and this one probably going to go down as top two books I read all year, man. I love this book so much, Charles. Well, uh, Mike, thank you. And uh, geez, Amazon must like us too because they're doing another uh, another promotion uh, month of September. So uh, thanks for the plug. We appreciate. We absolutely appreciate. Charles, I'll keep in touch, my friend. Thank you so much. Enjoy your hundred acres of land, and I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right, all right. Nice talking to you, Mike. See you later, my brother. All right, sir. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.